Let's begin with prayer. Father, we need you. We need you for this hour. We need you, Father, for everything. Just for listening, for paying attention. We need you. I pray that you would rivet our attention on your word. That the message of your word would grip our hearts and our our minds. So that we don't want to think of anything else. I pray, Father, that you would also give us not only attention, but perception. Help us to get it. I pray that the Word of God would fall like seed on good ground today. Not hardened hearts, not shallow hearts, but hearts that are receptive to Your Word, where it can truly take root, grow, and produce fruit, a harvest of fruit. So we need you. I I pray, Father, that you would even create longing in every heart, mine too, for all of these things. Give to us your spirit so that all of this comes to pass. And we ask that you answer in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a lot of questions for you today to consider. I, I know this is something that I just do instinctively, normally. It's kind of natural for me to ask and anticipate answers and answer those questions as I go through a message. But I feel like I have even more questions than usual. I want to begin with three. You ever played a game of Bible trivia and there was uh, the category of questions, who said it? I want to begin this morning with a who said it. So I'm going to give you the quote. You tell me who it was that said it. God has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Who said it? God has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Not not David, not Job. Jesus. It was Jesus. Jesus said that, It's recorded in John 8, verse 29. God has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Now, second follow-up question. From those words, how does Jesus feel? How does He feel about His relationship with God? How does He feel in His relationship with God? And don't tell me good I want something a little more precise than good. Jesus feels what in his relation? Let me read the quote again. God has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. How does that sound to you? Okay, obedient, connected, perfect, all right. Okay. Wouldn't you say... And I wouldn't disagree with any of those answers. Wouldn't you say that he feels confident? God has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He feels confident in his relationship with God. Now, what is, looking at that text again, what is the basis 
for that confidence. And somebody did give me this answer just a moment ago. Okay, the, the oneness with the Father. But the, you can, the confidence, you can see the confidence is not in this text based on who He is. He doesn't say, um, God does not leave me alone because I am His only Son. It's not based on who He is. His confidence, isn't it based on what He does? It's obedience, right? That is the source of his confidence. He says, God has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So he has an airtight confidence. What is the seal of it? That airtight confidence is sealed fast by his obedience to the Father. That confidence is conditional Upon his faithful obedience. Another question. Do you think that it's possible for you to have similar confidence in your relationship with God? Do you think that it's possible? Do you think that you can be confident, like Jesus was confident, of constant fellowship, ongoing communion with God, and God's fatherly smile in your life. Do you think, and I'm not looking for an answer aloud at this moment, do you think that you can have, that it's possible to have similar confidence to Jesus? 1 John 3, verses 19 to 24, holds out that confidence to you. We'll read this text, and I'm going to make the case that you can have similar confidence, and then... We'll, we'll go over the whole text and so, see how we can have it. Verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He, Jesus, has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Okay, I want to begin right now making the case that the confidence that Jesus had of ongoing communion with the Father, the Father's nearness and the Father hearing, I believe that the Scripture teaches that we can have similar confidence. Look at verses 21 and 22 again. He says, John says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Now, I am not forcing any comparison between these two passages that we've already looked at. John 8, 29, and 1 John 3, particularly verses 21 and 22. Jesus is confident 
in his relationship with God in John 8, 29, because of what factor? Because he always does the things that are pleasing to the Father. John says we may be confident for what factor? Because we keep God's commandments and do what pleases him. Literally, look down at verse 22 again, at the end of verse 22 there, I believe it's the end. Yes. Literally, what pleases him is the things pleasing him. And doesn't that sound very parallel to John 8, 29? Jesus said, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John says, we do what pleases him. And on the basis of that obedience, there is confidence in that relationship with God. In fact, the parallel is so close here that that word that is translated pleasing. Remember, the Greek, the English language didn't exist when the New Testament was written. The New Testament was written in Greek in its entirety, except for a few places that use Aramaic. But anyway, uh, there, the word that is translated pleasing is aresta. Okay? And that word is pretty rare in the Greek New Testament. It's only used four times. And only two times in all of the New Testament is the phrase ta-aresta, the things pleasing, used. Only two times can you find that phrase. And the place, the two places are John 8, 29, and 1 John 3, verse 22. Now let's put the parallels between these two passages together. We have the same feeling of confidence. And I realize with Jesus that's an implied confidence, but I think it's, it's pretty obvious nonetheless. In 1 John 3.22, it's, uh, or not 22, but the verse earlier, it's explicit. So we have the same feeling of confidence in the same relationship with God based on the same condition of doing the things that are pleasing to him. What does that tell you? The conclusion, inevitably, is that we can have in our relationship with God a similar confidence to what Jesus had in his relationship with God. Now tell me you don't want that. Let's go back. Let's see how we can have this now. We'll begin with verse 18. Okay, John entreats us in verse 18. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So, How may you know and how may you be reassured that you belong to God truly? That you are of the truth? It's when you love in truth. When you love God's people truly expressed in deeds of love, that is the evidence that you are of the truth. And again, this is something that I was trying to get across last week and I don't know how well I did. But this is not what John is saying. He is not saying 
you give of yourself in love, and therefore you are of the truth and not of the devil's lie. That's not the order of things, okay? Rather, it's you are of the truth, you belong to God truly, and because of that, as a consequence, you give of your life to his people. And the distinction is huge. It's the difference between works salvation and salvation resulting in works. It's the difference between works being a requirement, which is not true, which is a false doctrine, and works being the result of being saved by God. So how may you know that you are of the truth? It's when you love in truth. But that brings up this, this question, what about our failures to love? Because we all know that in the constant clash between the flesh and the spirit, inevitably there will be times and even seasons when we follow the pattern of Cain that we were warned about in the passage we talked about last week in 1 John 3, right? We will, what will we do? We will look for our own personal gain at other people's expense, just like Cain did with his brother Abel, rather than seeking other people's gain at our expense, like in the way of Christ. And so when that happens, when we fail to love, what happens to our relationship with God as believers? The relationship remains secure. But what happens to our confidence? Remember, Our confidence is airtight and sealed with obedience. If we are disobedient, that loosens the seal, and there goes our confidence in our relationship with God. There goes our joy. So there's a crack in our confidence now. Look back at verse 19. It says, We know we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him as we love in truth. The word for know, and I'm giving you a little bit more Greek than usual, but I think that this will actually aid your understanding. It won't be confusing to you. The word for know is gnosko. Now the word here in verse 20 about our heart condemning us, that word condemn is kata gnosko. And you pull that word apart And you have kata on one hand, that's the prefix. It means, um, what does it mean? It means against. And you have gnosko, which means no. So that is, your heart knows something against you. When you fail to love, suddenly your heart knows something against you. And it makes me think of that... uh, short story by Edgar Allan Poe that probably a good many of us read back in high school, The Tell-Tale Heart. said it slowly because it can be a tongue twister. The Tell-Tale Heart. Has anybody here ever had your heart pound with guilt? In that little short story that Edgar Allan Poe told, there was this murderer who hid his victims under the floorboards of his house. And the police came calling because one of the neighbors heard a scream during the night. And so three police officers show up, and the the murderer has them actually sit down in the room under which that victim is buried, and he begins to have very casual conversation with them and says the guest who's staying in the room has been gone and really doesn't you know, know anything about any kind of murder or anything. 
It's just a casual conversation. Things go smoothly. It seems like it's going to be a cover-up until he can begin to detect in his mind the beating of a heart underneath the floorboards. And, and he, the conversation goes on. The police officers are just acting completely normal. But the longer that the conversation goes, the louder that the beating of this heart gets until he can't stand it anymore. And he gives himself up. And he says, I did it. He pulls open the floorboards and there is the man that he murdered and then dismembered a fact that you didn't know but adds to the story. Has your heart ever pounded with guilt? In our case, the heart, the telltale heart the pounds with guilt, with condemnation, is our own. So what do you do when there is a crack in your confidence, in your relationship with God? The Bible says, whenever our heart condemns us, verse 20, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. God, this is one of the most reassuring statements we have in John's letter. God is greater than your heart. Let me give you two ways. God is greater than your heart in that he is more just than your heart is just. When your heart knows something against you, it's going to accuse, and it's going to condemn, and it's going to require payment for the sin that you have done against God. But God is more just. God has already required payment for your sin. And there has already been justice. He has already sent His Son into the world, and His Son died in our place and made satisfaction for our sin. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. God is more just than your heart. When your heart demands condemnation, it's being unjust. God is greater than your heart because he is more just than your heart. The second way, not this is not, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Exhaustive, okay? There's more ways that God is greater than your heart than this, but I'm just giving you two. The second is that God is greater than your heart because he is more tender, he is more sympathetic, and he is more merciful than your heart is. God is more merciful to you than your heart is to you. So the answer to your heart's accusations, the answer to your heart's condemnation is not to begin to search within for more good that will outdo the bad. The answer to your heart's condemnation is not to swear up and down that you are done with that sin and you will give yourself more to defeating that sin. The answer is not to look at yourself at all, but to look away to God who is greater than your heart. It says, God knows all things. John is actually using a play on words in the original. Again, your heart knows things against you. Kata gnosko. But God gnoske panta. God knows all things. Your heart knows something against you, but God knows all things. So whenever your heart condemns you, or whenever the devil's accusations ring in your ears, you need to answer back, okay? And here's, here's a sampling. Do with this what you will. Answer back. Heart, 
You're deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? Heart, that's, that's Jeremiah 17. I take that to mean, heart, that you don't know the half of my sins. God knows them all. I hear your accusation, devil, and it's true. I did that. But you don't know the half of my sins. I am way, I'm far worse than you will ever say. But God knows all things, and He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Every believer hears these accusations. Every believer is assaulted with this condemnation. And you have to answer back with the truth, the Word of God. Heart, God is greater than you. And He knows all things. Some time ago, I was watching a debate between a a pretty well-known Christian apologist, defender of the faith, and a rather arrogant atheist. And this debate was being moderated by this Englishman. And so this atheist very smugly, said that everything under the sun is explainable by science. And the Christian apologist scoffed at him and rattled off in about 30 seconds five things that science can't explain. Something like five things. It was at least five things. One of them, an example, would be moral virtue, okay? So he rattles off these five things in about 30 seconds that science can in no way explain. And, of course, the moderator is between the two debaters, and he's supposed to be neutral. But when he hears these five very quick answers to the smugness of the atheist, the moderator smiles, looks at him, and he says, put that in your pipe and smoke it. And that's what I want to say to the devil and to my heart. Heart, you think you know so much against me. God knows all things. Devil of hell, your accusations may be true, but you don't know the half of it. God knows all things. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. God sent his son into the world that you might be brought into fellowship with the Father and with the Son. That's 1 John 1, verses 1 to 4. God sent His Son into the world that you might have fellowship with the triune God. And God means for you to flourish in that relationship. God does not mean for you to be paralyzed by guilt over disobedience. He means for you to flourish God means for you to be confident in your relationship with Him. To know that there is not only union with Him through Christ, but there is communion with Him. That God is near, that God is close, that the communion you have with Him is rich, and it's intimate, and it's close communion. So John says in verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, if our heart can't say anything against us because we are living in obedience to God, we have confidence before God. We have confidence. Who doesn't want that confidence? Who isn't sick and tired of hearing the accusations of our hearts and of the devil? Who doesn't want that confidence? God means for you to have it. 
And when you live a consistently obedient life to the commandments of God, you may have it. So what does confidence mean? What does it look like? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean snapping your fingers at the divine waiter and telling him to keep your life glass full. That's not what it means to be proud and presumptuous. It means that you know your Father is with you. It means that you know that He answers you. So it says, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And get this, verse 22, beginning of the verse. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. This was Jesus' confidence. He always did what the Father required, and so He knew that He always had the Father's ear. Now, be so careful to keep that clause, whatever we ask we receive from Him, in context. Because if you rip it out of its context, you're going to end up praying self-centered and godless prayers. Note the second half of verse 22. The condition for the confidence that God is with us and hears us is this. You look in, end of verse 22. Because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. So if you take whatever we ask we receive from Him and you get these visions of prosperity and good fortune, you know, you got the health glass full and you got the wealth glass full and you've got the American dream fulfilled. If that's what you get visions of from whatever we ask we receive from Him, you're going to end up praying godless prayers. Because if that's what you're all about, what are you doing? You're living for yourself. And so how are you going to pray? If you are living for that, how will you pray? Well, you'll live for yourself and you'll require in your prayers that God lives for you too. And that's not the way that the creator-creature relationship functions. And that's not what prayer is all about. Rather... If your heart is set on keeping God's commandments and doing the things that are pleasing to Him, if that's what you want, how are you going to live? And how are you going to pray? How are you going to pray? You are going to pray everything that you can think of to those ends, that you keep God's commandments and do the things pleasing to Him. So, quick two examples. I had a whole list of verses I had to chop out for the sake of word count. I'm just going to give you Romans 15, 5 and 6, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. But I encourage you, if you go through the New Testament and look at the prayers of Paul, you will be impressed by the God-centeredness of his prayers. Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When your heart is set on keeping His commandments and doing what pleases Him, that's how you pray. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the New Testament, old as well, look at the Psalms, are filled with these examples of the kinds of things that the people of God should make the priority of their prayers. 
Is there room for daily bread prayers? Of course there is. God supplying your needs day by day? Of course. But if you look, for example, at the prayer Jesus taught us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, look at the God-centeredness of that prayer. That His will be done in heaven and on earth. That His kingdom come, etc. Our prayers should be God-centered. So, whatever we ask, we receive from Him. That just sets us loose to pray that God would sanctify us completely and keep us blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When those are your desires, in accord with the desires of God for you, you have the confidence that your prayers will be answered. So it says we must keep God's commandments and do what pleases Him. Well, question, what is God's commandment? Look at verse 23. This is His commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Do you want to keep an airtight seal on your confidence in your ongoing relationship of communion with God? You want to keep an airtight seal on that confidence? What, what do I do? How, do? how do I go about it? What, what steps should I take? Let's keep it simple. Let's keep it simple, people. That's what John is saying. Believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. And love one another, just as Jesus commanded us. Do you want heaven's ear? Then honor heaven's Son. Do you want God's fatherly delight and pleasure over your life? Do you want to know that God is smiling over your life, then delight in God's great pleasure, His Son. If you want heaven's ear, honor heaven's Son. The Father delights in those who delight in His Son. Now listen to the words of Jesus. Now I know that it's just a few minutes after 12 now. No doubt there's at least five people whose stomachs are starting to rumble with hunger and you're anticipating going out to eat, I mean, there's going to be a good Mother's Day meal unless you just ask your husband to get you some corn dogs from Sonic like one person did. But for the rest of you, you're anticipating something good and you're having trouble keeping attention. I want you to stay with me. Listen to this passage from Jesus in John 16. In that day, Jesus said to his disciples, You will ask in my name, And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father Himself loves you because the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I came from God. The Father loves you because you love Me. Now, I know that that can just blow apart all of these conceptions that we have of the love of God. Because we have, in the church today and in the culture, a very one-dimensional view of the love of God. That it simply means God wants to make much of me. God feels good for me, about me. What is there not to love? You know, that kind of thing. But the love of God as portrayed in Scripture is so much more rich and deep than that. I'll give you five ways the Bible speaks of God's love quickly, okay? 
Because I want you to understand that passage. Why does he say, the Father loves you because you love me? How, how, does that, how can you make sense of that? Isn't the love of God supposed to be unconditional? Okay, there, the Bible speaks of the triune love of God. The love of God for the members of the Trinity. God the Father loves the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Son and the Father. The Son loves the Spirit and loves the Father. There's the triune eternal love of God. Then there is God's providential, benevolent love for all of His creation as He sustains it and cares for it day by day. Here comes the sun. Here comes the rain. God loves His creation. There is God's love for all people, for all sinners everywhere, which is expressed in that call to repent with pleading voice. Come and find your rest in Me. God's love for all people. Then there is God's Love for His elect. The unconditional, steadfast love of God, which can never be broken, which is ours forever in Christ. God's love for His own people. And then there is this fifth kind of love, where the Bible actually tells us, keep yourself in the love of God. This love is God's fatherly pleasure. It's kind of like as a parent, you know, your, your child is disobedient and you still love that child. You are committed to that child and the love you have for your child is never going away. But in the moment when they rebel against you, are you really pouring out that love? Are you really in that moment feeling the depth of your affection for them? And I believe that when God speaks of his love, God loves you because you love me and believe that God sent me. It's speaking of God's fatherly pleasure that he pours out the experience of his love on us as we obey. And what is the consequence of that in John 16? Jesus said, the father himself loves you. He says, in that day you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. What is the consequence of our love for Christ and honoring the Son? There is the kind of prayers that bends heaven to earth. That's the consequence of our steadfast obedience. And that's what John is speaking of in this letter. That as we obey consistently and faithfully, we can know whatever we ask for, we receive from God. So, let's sum it up real quick. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Why? On what basis? Because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Can we be a little more specific than that? Yes, this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. So the Bible is clear. Do you want heaven's ear? Then honor heaven's Son. Delight yourself in the one over whom heaven sings. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I'm not done yet. I'm not done. He says, believe. He says that we must believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Who is this written to? 
Who is the letter written to? It's written to the church. It's written to believers. It's saying believers believe. Keep on believing in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. To believe in His name means that you give to Jesus. The name is not just J-E-S-U-S. The name is the person. So give all your faith to all of Him for all that He is and claims to be and does. Give all your faith to Jesus. That's what it means to believe in His name. So what do you need to believe for? What do you need? Do you need hope of glory? Believe in Jesus. Because through Him, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans 5. What do you need, church family? Do you need to know God? Then believe in Jesus, who is the Word of God, who is the exact imprint of His character and the radiance of the Father's glory. What do you need? Do you need victory over sin? Believe in Jesus, in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, for victory over sin. Because the Bible declares that in Jesus we are dead to sin and alive to God. That's Romans 6. What do you need? Do you need daily bread? Believe that God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What do you need? Do you need any good at all from God? Believe in Jesus. Because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What do you need? Believe in Jesus. Believe in the name of God's son. That's God's commandment. Believe in my son. And heaven will bend to the heart that honors him. Now, of course, so believer, believe, believe, believe in the name of Jesus. And the consequence of all this faith submission will be what? It's going to turn into life submission. The consequence of you giving your faith to Jesus will mean you will give your life to Jesus. Because you can't believe in the name of Jesus and then live for your name. It doesn't work that way. And so we do what Jesus requires. And what has he required of us? That we love one another in the household of God. And that is God's commandment. Believe in the name of my son. And love one another as my son commanded. Because I want, I want you to understand something. I, I really desperately want you to get this. The fathers love divine. And power divine. And wisdom divine is streaming eternally outward for the honor of the Son. That's what God's heart is set upon. The glory of His Son. And when God sees that you love Him too, that you love Jesus too, that you honor His Son too, He loves that. And His heart, heaven itself, will bend to the one who honors heaven's son. And so it says in verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. How could it be otherwise? As Jesus said in John 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word 
and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Lots of questions this morning. Got one more. Though I'm going to ask it in two ways. What do you want? Make that three ways. What kind of life do you want? What are your life goals? About a decade ago, I guess more than that, I was sitting in a church service in a small church in Andalusia, Alabama, where I served for four years. And the pastor leading the service was polling the congregation. It was kind of a casual service. He was standing down front and just getting some feedback from us. And he said, what are your life goals? And he was going person by person. And he didn't want us to spiritualize it. And maybe I just had to spiritualize it, partly because I really need to be a better goal setter than I am. I don't set five-year and 10-year and 20-year goals. Anyway, kind of of a little bit ashamed to admit that. But I just, I thought, you know what I want with my life? I I want to please God. I want God's smile, his fatherly pleasure over my life because I've I've tasted that and there is nothing better in all of life than knowing that you are in close communion with God and being confident and being so confident that you know whatever you ask, you receive from Him and all of your prayers are God-word, God-centered, God-glorifying and you just want more of Him and you know His smile is upon your life There is nothing better. So when he got around to me and he said, Mike, what do you want? I'm thinking, I know you said not to spiritualize this, but I'm going to anyway. I want to please God. That's what I want. What are you after? What do you want? Do you see what the Bible is holding out to you today? John 8, 1 John 3, John 14, John 16 is saying that you can, like Jesus, have great confidence in your relationship with God, knowing that you are in close communion with Him, that He is always with you. He is near in answering your prayers. Heaven will honor the one who honors heaven's Son. Heaven will bend to earth to honor the one who honors heaven's son. It's what the word is holding out to you. Do you want it? Father, I pray that we would be consumed with your son, Jesus, like you are consumed for your son, Jesus. I pray that you would give to us, plant within our hearts the passion to honor and exalt and lift up your son like you have that passion. And I pray, Father, that we would never stop and that we would only deepen in believing in His name and obeying His commandment to love one another. And as a consequence, you have promised great confidence before you. I pray, Father, that you would do such a work in so many hearts 
every heart, it's in this room, that we end up with an airtight confidence in our relationship with you, sealed fast by obedience to your commandment. You're our confidence. You're our song. You're our joy. You're our hope. You're our life. You, Father, are our righteousness in Christ. You are everything that we need. And we just want to thank you for what you give. We love you. Help us to love you more. In Christ's name, amen.